Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. So why don't you tell pigs a secret? Because they always squeal. Why don't cows wear flip-flops? Because they lack toes. <laughs> Even that one might be a little bit much for me. All right. I'm going to ask you, would you stand to your feet with me in honor of God's Word? Uh, we're going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and look at... Is that still Daisy back there? Daisy, on top of it again. Hitting the slide early. Wow. Don't you love it when people do their jobs right? Yes. Yeah. It's like she cares or something, you know? It's like she cares. Oh, what amazing thought. All right. Here we go. Now, uh, I do need to make note of this. I am reading from the ESV today. I'm trying something new, all right? Would you all allow me to try some stuff? In my devotions, I'm reading the ESV, and I sort of like to hang with it. I'll probably go back to NIV real soon. I may try NLT real soon. Do you know that all these translations, they're, they're valid. None of them are really bad. None of them are really great. They all basically say the same thing. Uh, so uh, ESV, I got a reason for doing it, but just trust me on that, all right? Josiah was eight years old. How old was he? Eight. Eight. So kids are worthless, right? No. No? What? What? You mean they're valuable even when they're eight? When he was eight years old, he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So how old was he when he died? 30 what? 39. Some of you can't do math. 39. Yeah, 30, 39 years. And he did what was right. He did what? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And the walked in the way of this... David, his father. Now, there's one thing you do need to know. The other passage, there's the King's passage, there's the Chronicles passage. And these two passages run parallel. They, they say basically the same story, but they just tell them in a little different way. And the other passage says that David, or, uh, that Josiah was like anybody else before or after him. And his heart was fully devoted to God, unlike any other king. So Josiah is an oddity. He's in oddity. He's unlike everybody else. Now, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, for in the eighth year of his reign... In, what? What? Hold on, hold on. How old was he when he started to reign? Eight. So, in the eighth year of his reign, how old was he? Sixteen. Don't tell me a teenager can't accomplish anything for the kingdom of God, right? Come on, come on. In the eighth year of his reign... Sorry, but it says it while he was still a boy, because if you're 16, you think you're a man, but let's arm wrestle. I'll show you man strength, because when I was 16, I couldn't beat anybody in arm wrestling. Man strength matters, right? There's a difference. You can still be a boy and still respect you, right? Still be young and still be respected. As a matter of fact, you can still be young and still do something, because in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a boy, he began to seek the God of his father. The most important thing he could do in his entire life, he made up his mind to do when he was 16. That's important. It's really important. And in the 12th year of his reign, what happened in the 12th year of his reign? 
He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places. We're going to talk about that next week. But in the 12th year of his reign, when he was 20, he began to take action. Notice that 12th year of his reign, just a second. I'm going to show you something that connects elsewhere in Scripture. But in the 12th year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places. And the Asherim, if you don't know what Asherim is, Asherim is an Ashtoreth. It is a Asherah pole. And Asherah pole is a huge phallic symbol. So in God's kingdom, in the, well, this is part of the reason God got mad, is because in God's church or his people, they were sexually perverse, worshiping phallic symbols. And you thought America was goofed up sexually? We hadn't got here yet. And then there were other carved and metal images, and he's going to deal, and we're going to find out about that next week. But this week, what I wanted to bring note to is that he was fully devoted to God, and he started young. So, Father, today, God, I'm not sure the sermon's any good today, but I know you have a message. And I want us to hear the message from your throne room. That we would hear what you're speaking to us. That it is time to seek God now. To establish a change before the pain comes. Amen and amen. Hey, before you're seated, you should turn to somebody close to you. And you should say... You picked the right person to sit next to today. All right. Hey, if you're online, I'm glad you're with us today. <clears throat> so I wasn't able to make it to church last week. Yeah, you guys are having too much fun. I like this. I, I like you having fun. So I didn't make it to church last week. You know the reason I didn't? Because I caught a flight that was an hour late. We left Punta Cana an hour late. It was my cheaper than a divorce getaway with my wife. Somebody said, you spend money going away with your wife every February. I'm like, yeah, it's cheaper than a divorce, buddy. <laughs> Add it up. Anyway, um, we were leaving Punta Cana Airport, but we were an hour late leaving. And then we land in Fort Lauderdale, and we sat on the tarmac for 30 minutes waiting for a gate to clear up. Because apparently, just because you land a plane doesn't mean they have any place to put it. And then when we got in, the, the luggage was delayed an extra 30 minutes. We had two hours between our flights, and now all two hours were gone. And then we had to go through customs. And customs, there were nine planes they backed up at the same time, so you can imagine what customs was like. So two hours and 40 minutes after our arrival, well, after our planned arrival, uh, 30 minutes late, I'm dragging my bags finally through to recheck them. If you go through customs, you have to recheck your bags. As you go to recheck your bags, um, you then turn around, you go through security, and you go back and try to get on board the plane, because you got to go through customs before you can catch your next flight. As I'm dragging my bags up to the belt to put it on the belt to go through, to submit them to go back through, the guy standing there says, you've missed your flight, don't recheck your bags. Well, like an idiot, I listened to him. 
So I turned and I walked through the door. And as I'm walking through the door, there's a doorway. I walked literally about that far on the other side of the door. And I said to my wife, no, let's recheck them. And the lady at the door, the only one who did her job the right way the entire time said, no, once you cross this doorway, I can't let you back in. Go wait in line with the other thousand people who have got their flights all goofed up. Well, I went to three different people over the next couple of minutes and I asked them, there's a reason I'm telling you this story. I asked them, can I just go get my next flight? And they said, no, it's 100% boarded. The doors are closed. You can't get your flight. They said that three different times. Only to find out the next day when someone decided to communicate with me that they had held the flight for another 30 minutes waiting on us to get there. I talked to four people who didn't care about anything except getting me out of their face so they could go on with whatever it was they were doing. So I had to rent a car because the next flight out of Fort Lauderdale wasn't until Tuesday. So I had to rent a car and drive all night long to get to the other side of the state so I could drive, fly home and try to get some stuff done last week. Now, I'm not complaining about the scenario. I want to make a comparison out of the scenario. Do you know anything about Home Depot, for example? Do you know that the average person that works for Home Depot at the front desk is empowered by the higher-ups, by the CEO? They are empowered to make decisions, and I don't know the exact dollar amount. I think it's around $50. They can make a $50 decision for you as a customer without consulting anyone because they're empowered to make a decision because they're told you're to care for the people that come through the door rather than do what Spirit Airlines did and just push me off to someone else. What kind of church do you want to be? What kind of Christian do you want to be? Do you want to be a Christian that actually cares for the people that you meet every day? Or do you want to be a Christian that just sort of whatever's the easiest for it, you push off? I'll tell you the kind of church I want us to be. I want us to quit being a church where the pastor does all the work. And I want us to be a church where the people in the pews are empowered by God to make decisions that make eternal differences in people's lives. I want you to be a representative of Jesus Christ with power more than just look at a screen, make a decision that you don't care about. I'm going to ask you to start being a person that cares about not only you, but those around you in the next generation. I'm tired of being a pastor. I am really tired of being a pastor. I want to be the leader of a movement. I want to be a leader of a movement. Actually, I want to get out of the way. I don't even want to lead the movement. I want the movement to take over. And I want you to be so in love with Jesus and so in love with your world that you act like a crazy radical all the time because you love Jesus so much. All right. Now I got to back up. I got to talk to you about why I'm telling this message. So I, had, I thought I had a slide for this, but I don't. So this will help you understand. The children of Israel, they had three, basically three 400-year terms we're going to talk about. They spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt, right? You remember that? 400 years, slaves in Egypt. Then they spent 400 years during the period of the judges. Read the book of Judges sometimes. It's a messed up book, all right? You don't, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. A guy kills his own daughter, all right? It is a messed up book, all right? There's a 
girl cut up for all right, 400 years. And then at the end of that 400 years, there's a third 400 years. And that third 400 years of Israel history is when the kings happen. That's King David, you know, starting with Saul, David, Solomon, on through. Actually, something happened at Solomon that was significant. The kingdom divided and it split into two. Eleven tribes went with Rehoboam and, uh, or with Jeroboam, and one tribe went with Rehoboam. And they split here about 80 years into the kingdom. Why does that matter? Because this is a 400-year time period. And this 400-year time, time period, after they split just a few years later, about 250 years into it, the kingdom of Israel ceased to exist because the Assyrians overran them, killed everyone, took them all away. All right? Then something happened right so we're at this point, we're at the end of this 400 years where the Babylonians are going to come, they're going to destroy the temple, they're going to take captive anybody worth anything out of Israel, and they're going to enslave those who are left in Israel, and they're going to basically put an end to the kings and all of that. It's going to come to an end, and right before it comes to an end, right here, there's a king named Josiah. That's the guy we talked about. Now, it's, it's key to understand that we're right at the end of this third time period. And the reason we're at the end of this third time period is because Babylon is about to destroy it all. Uh, and Josiah becomes a good king. The last good king, the best king, happens right before it all ends. Now, why does that matter? Well... You and I still have a faith. Our faith somehow survived. The faith in God somehow survived this decisive, destructive moment. How did our faith survive this decisive and destructive moment? Well, it, it survived because, are you all ready for this? Josiah turned the people's hearts back to God. And out of Josiah's revival came Daniel, the guy who wrote your book of Daniel. We're going to have some fun over the next couple of weeks working through it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard of them? Yes. Yeah? How about this guy? There's another guy named Jeremiah. Listen to this. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, The words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th... What did he do in the 12th year of his reign? In the 12th year of his reign, he started purging and everything, and that... Because he started doing the right thing, it opened the door for God to give a prophet to Israel named Jeremiah that spoke to Israel through all of the Babylonian captivity and led them and guided them through the pain that came, the destruction. If you read Jeremiah or Lamentations, you would understand he's known as the weeping prophet. Why is he the weeping prophet? Because he is mourning the loss that's going on in Judah during, during his time of prophesying. And when did Jeremiah begin to prophesy? Right after Josiah did the right thing. Now, here's sort of my premise, and I want you to hear this. If we want to raise up a Daniel generation that's faithful to God in the middle of the crisis of this world, then we have to have a bunch of Josiahs decide to do what Josiah did to give the foundation and the footing so that we can raise up Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Jeremiah. Are you all following me? All right, good. Well, then let's talk about that. It was a couple of things that came out of the, uh, the Babylonian captivity. 
they redid church. They couldn't do their worship the way they did it before. So what, have you ever heard, like Jesus went into a synagogue, and while he was in a synagogue, have you heard that? Anybody ever read that in the Bible? Jesus went into a synagogue? Do you know synagogues did not exist before this moment right here in Israel's history? They had to re-envision a way of doing worship. How did that happen? It came out of the reforms of Josiah. They were so committed to God, they were going to find a way to worship, whether it was the way it was supposed to be or not. <laughs> this is sort of cool, isn't it? It's history, but we can learn something from history and apply it to today. If we're going to, um, to be, if we're going to raise up a Daniel generation that will be faithful to God in the middle of the crisis that I believe that's coming, then we need to, we need to follow the Reformation and the revival of Josiah. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. What would that look like if you were fully, if you were fully, completely committed to and sold out to God? If you were, not the person next to you, you. If you were dev so devoted to God that you would do what he says, when and how he says it, what would it look like if you were to live that kind of life? I guarantee you prayer times would be embraced by more than four or five people in this church. I guarantee our next-gen ministries, we wouldn't have to twist people's arms to get them to serve next-gen. You would, you would gladly, there would be some of you, that God would speak to you to do something with next generation, to raise up a Daniel generation. There would be life group leaders that wouldn't just simply, you know, some of you have biblical knowledge and experience with God, and you just sit on it. You don't lead a life group, and you don't teach anybody, you don't train anybody. You just sort of, oh, it's mine, you know, I've done my work. No, your work's not done until you're dead. dead. That's right. Keep going. Um, what would our individual lives look like? We would study the scriptures. We would pray. You know, Saturday morning when we gather for prayer here at 8.30, can I reissue this challenge? I would, I would encourage you, if you call Harvest Ridge your home, would you take a Saturday morning once a month and join us for prayer at 8.30 up here in the chapel? Every, every month, every month, I ask you to take one Saturday morning and join us for prayer. And then there would be a personal striving for holiness. We would want to do what Josiah did, and that's to get rid of the idols and get rid of the sin that's in our lives. These are things that I think we'd want to... And by the way, can I, can I talk to you about that for a second? Um, this past week, man, I was doing so good. I was following Jesus. I was praying, reading my Bible. I, was, I wasn't thinking bad thoughts. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, phew, something goes through my head. Anybody ever had that happen? And I spent like an hour, the next hour, fighting with this stuff in my head. And, and uh, some of you get condemned that you don't live perfect. Do you know Jesus does not ask you for perfection? He asks you for direction. You know what that means? Holiness is not about you being perfect. It's about you choosing to pursue him. Holiness is not perfection. It is direction. It's the fact that your mind stays committed to him all the time. All right. Took a long time on that, but I, one more thing I want to say about raising up a Daniel generation. Parents should be living the example of Christ for their kids. You know, we live in a bicycle, helmet, helicopter, parent, mask-wearing generation where we feed kids screens and TVs all the time to make them passive instead of dealing with them. And one 25-year-old girl who works with teenagers or works with kids said this, and I thought it was a good enough quote to literally put on the screen for you. This is what she said. We're spending our time protecting our children instead of preparing them. 
And I want to tell you that if we're going to raise up the next generation, we're not going to protect people. We're, going to have, we're not going to have to protect our kids. We need to teach them how to deal with pain, how to deal with disappointment, how to deal with failure. I am trying. I really am trying to preach here. I, 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 want to, I just want to encourage you that we live in a protect our kids at all costs world. Quit protecting them so much and teach them how to learn from the struggle instead of keeping them from the struggle. I'm concerned. I wrote this down word for word in my notes. I'm concerned for Generation Z because they haven't been taught how to deal with pain. All right. So we, can we agree that what, what I think we need is I think we need a Josiah-type revival, a personal revival where we love God, where we're fully committed to him, where we raise our family to follow and serve Jesus, and where we are a witness of, our, of, our, uh, of the life and love of Jesus to the world. So there are six dimensions to Josiah's revival. I'm going to cover three of them this week. Next week, I'm going to cover the next three. And the first one is going to, these are going to come straight out of the text. This tells you how hard I work on my sermons. They all start with a letter R. They're all three words with a letter R. Y'all ready for this one? The first one is, he repaired God's house. He repaired God's house. So his initial concern was for the repairing of God's house. We read about that in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 4. Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought to the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from who? Collected from the people. And let it be given to the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, and to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. Repair the house. So the whole point is he started by being concerned about worship to God and the house of God. Now, in those days, the house of God was a temple. But these days, we believe that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that this collective gathering of us, the temple of the Holy Spirit, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are God's house. And together, we make up God's house. You are, and the person next to you, you are God's house. So the way that revival all started was he was concerned about the gathering location where people gathered to worship God. And it all started when he asked the people to give. Right? Didn't it say he collected from the people? All right, so can, can, I, can I ask something of you? There are some people in this room, you attend this church, you call this church your home. You don't give a penny. Not a penny. Your giving report says zero, nilch, goose egg, nothing. I want to issue you a challenge. I want to challenge you to give $5 a week to general fund, not to the fun stuff, not to kingdom builders, to general fund. You know why? We've got to prepare that, repair the house. You know, we've got $2,000 electric bills and all that stuff. I, but I'm not saying that because I'm in need, because this is not about us trying to get dollars out of your pocket. Do you know what this is about? It's about the fact that you need to give to recognize that God is the provider. And also, you need to give to God's house, because if you're going to start a personal revival, it's going to have to take some tangible action to begin with. So I'm going to ask you to give $5 a week. If you do it online, go online, put in recurring giving. And there are some of you, I want to ask you a question. 
what was it that bugged you about that request? There was, there were some of you when I asked for $5 a week to this, $5? $5 is really nothing. Why, why did it bug you? What was it, what was it about it that bugged you? Um, can I tell you why I'm asking? Because Jesus said this little statement. He said, where your treasure is, your heart is. And I would say that if it bugs you that somebody, you know, well, the church only wants my money. No, if I wanted your money, I'd ask for more than five bucks. No, we don't, it's not about your money. It's about you taking a tangible statement that you love God and you're devoted to him and you want to do something about it. And if it bugged you, I'm going to ask you to just search your heart, and I'm going to ask you, did it bug you because you love money more than you love God? Just asking a question. I'm not accusing. I'm asking you to search your heart. Does it bug you because you really don't want to make that kind of commitment? Because if you do that, then you have to really say, God, I put you first. I, and what I want, what I want for you and what I want from this house, what I want from us, I want us to be the kind of people who really love Jesus all the time. All of us. Not just part of the time, not just what's convenient. Five bucks isn't going to kill you. Come on, you waste more than that on fries at McDonald's. Oh, there are some of you, you're like, well, only $5? What's the matter with you? Come on, that's not giving. Well, I tell you what, we can steer a moving car, but I can't steer a parked car. Let's do something, all right? So I issue you the challenge. All right. Can I say that revival always starts with a commitment to God's house? Always. In Hebrews chapter 10, 25, it says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Where else in this world are you going to be encouraged to actually do something like I just encourage you to do? Be generous for, to actually give with nothing, no expectation in return. Where are you going to be asked anywhere else in the world to be encouraged to follow Jesus with all your heart, to sacrifice your own sins, to, to give up your own lust? Where are you going to be asked to do that? Where are you going to have somebody around you that's going to encourage you like they did a while ago? Because some of you, when you were talking, you just weren't talking. You were literally encouraging one another before you sat down. Where else in the world do you get the kind of encouragement you get in a local church? I'm going to tell you, nowhere. You don't get it on social media. You don't get it at work. You don't get it from your family. You don't get it at those other places. You get it only at the house of God. We need each other. Yes. We need each other to encourage one another. Yes. I've had people in this very room tell me I'm being an idiot. Shame. Did you know? No, they were right. I was being an idiot. <laughs> and when, when somebody that loves you tells you you're being an idiot and you need to stop being an idiot, Right? Are the people at work going to do that? You shouldn't talk about your wife that way. They're not going to do that, but you know where we will do it? Here. Do you know why? Because this is an encouraging place, not just to encourage you with what feels good, but what is good. You don't believe that? 1 Timothy chapter 3.15 says, God's household, that's this place, that's us gathered together, not this building, that's us gathered together, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and foundation of truth. Where are you going to hear truth? You're not going to get it from social media. 
You're not going to get it from the news, trust me. Fox News proved that recently. You're not going to get... Y'all didn't hear about that. I'm not going there. You're not going to get the truth out there. Where are you going to get the truth? Where we gather around the Word of God and the truth of God's Word. And don't tell me you can be a good Christian and not come to church. When I was a kid, we used to catch catfish. Anybody ever catfish? Yeah, we caught a bunch of them. My dad trotlined, and uh, that, that's a thousand hooks set out in the mud, and you catch the catfish. And you can take an old catfish. You can take them off the hook. You can throw them in the boat. And he'll lay in that boat, and he'll lay there and breathe and breathe and breathe and breathe and breathe and breathe for hours, literally for hours. The catfish will live for hours outside of the water, but I'm going to tell you, if you leave them outside the water long enough, the catfish will die. Do you know why? Because it's not the environment from which he gets life. He's got to be in water to get life. And if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you can't be outside of the church. You can't be outside of the gathering of believers and stay alive. It will be, you may survive for a while, but you're going to die eventually. And I want you to live. That's why I say, let's go back and let's honor the church again. Your children will not thrive outside of God's house. Your children will not thrive outside of God's house. I hear parents say they don't want to make their kids go to church. Your eight-year-old says to you, I'm not going to take a bath this week. I'm not going to brush my teeth this week. What are you going to say? You're going to say, get your butt in there and get a bath like I told you to, right? It's funny to me, you care more about the body of your child than you do the soul of your child. You'll force them to do what's right with their body, but not with their soul. Why would you let your week, eight-year-old go a week without bath? You wouldn't. It. Why would you let them go a week without God's Word? You shouldn't. And don't just tell them to come to church. Bring them. Get your butt up and get here. Hey, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit because I want to tell you, do you know the average person comes to church 1.7 times a month now? 1.7 times a month. Do you know what that means? Man, when I was a kid, I used to go to Sunday school, then I'd go to church, and then I'd go to Sunday night, then I'd go Wednesday night, and then I'd go to Saturday night youth with my parents. I was at church all the time. I, I think I lived there and I stayed at my house occasionally. <laughs> and you know what's happened? We have lost something in our culture because there's not a reverence for God's house anymore. All right. One other thing I want to say. At age 40, your kids won't be playing AAU basketball, but they'll still have a soul. All right. Second thing he did was he taught them to respect the scriptures. Second, first part of his revival is he repaired God's house. Second of all, he respected the scriptures. Because there was emphasis on the house of God, the scriptures were discovered. It happened this way. Second Kings chapter 22, verse 10. Then Chapin, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Chapin, so they found the book. They started working on the church, and they found the book. And they said, uh, the Chapin read it before the king, and when the king heard the words of the book of law, he tore his clothes. Why? Well, notice what the king did. As soon as he heard the word, he said, hey, everybody else got to hear this too. So he read 2 Kings 23. Then the king sent all the elders of Judah, Jerusalem, were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both great and small. And he read in the hearing the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. So there, there was a hearing of the word of God by Josiah, and then Josiah immediately said, the rest of the people got to hear this too. I have a problem. 
I was at a meeting this past week, and one of the pastors there told me that we're having a hard time um, getting credentials candidates for licensing in the Assemblies of God. We're having problems with them passing the basic test because their Bible literacy is so low. Now, I happen to have a, a little meme of what this looks like. So, this guy put up, never give up your life. If Abraham can kill Goliath, just one stone, anything is possible. If you don't see what's wrong with that, look down at the bottom. The guy says, I'm a Sunday school dropout, but I know that Abraham didn't kill Goliath. It was Moses. <laughs> and for those of you that don't understand why they're laughing, it was David that killed Goliath. Now, why, why do I point this out? Because it's a meme and it's funny, except it's not. We have, we have people wanting to go in the ministry that can't find a book of the Bible. We have people wanting to go into ministry that, that don't know that Timothy was a person. That don't understand the difference between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. That don't know. Don't get me started. You see, we have a famine in our land. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. When I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night, we have ministries here for youth. The Sunday nights, we have ministries here for youth and kids to hear the stories of the Bible, to memorize Scripture. Those things happen in this house. But that's not enough. But it's something and, and they can't just do it occasionally and get it. It needs to be more than once in a great while that your kid hears these things. We're doing some of the job. But the rest of it is when we dedicate kids, we give a Bible to you so that you can go home and you can actually read Bible stories to your kids. My grandpa, they used to drop me off at my grandpa's house. Uh, mom would, she'd go to work. Grandma and Grandpa would keep me for the day while she was working. And uh, after breakfast, they'd let me watch Casper the Friendly Ghost on the big black and white TV. And the big black and white TV, and, and you know, it was more fun than Casper the Friendly Ghost because when you turned it off, If you don't know what that is, that's the picture on the screen. It, it took that long to turn it off. It was more entertaining. By the way, it was really entertaining after 10 o'clock p.m. when they would play the Star Single Banner, and then you would get the stripes, and all you would get was music the rest of your night, yeah. You got screens all the time filling up your brain with everything. We used to get fun watching the screen shut down. But you know what would happen while I'd walk, watch Casper the Friendly Ghost? You know what happened? Here I am, a little kid sitting on the floor, and I turn around, I look, and there'd be my grandpa with his lips moving, with his finger moving along his Bible. He'd sit there for hours reading the scriptures. You know what my dad did? My dad taught himself to read with the old King James Bible on his lap and a dictionary beside him, and he would move along, and his lips would read as he read the Bible. 
It was generational. From my grandfather to my father, one day I'm, I'm teaching myself Greek. I'm reading the Greek New Testament out loud, and I guess I was reading a little loud, and one of my kids walked in the room. I said, I'm sorry I'm making too much noise. They said, Dad, you've been doing this for 20 years. What I want to tell you is, is that you need to value the Word of God in your life and pass on that value to the next generation. And if all you do is read the Bible verse of the day, which is one verse, you're not learning the Word of God. It needs to be read in context. It needs to be studied. Get you an NIV study Bible. Read a chapter a day. Read the notes. Learn something. Don't simply... We have, we have a famine because nobody... We're just not paying attention to the Word of God. And it disturbs me. So one of the things we did in my household is we would memorize Scripture. Uh, dinner table, we always made an effort to dinner table every night. We were sitting down at the dinner table and we would memorize. Well, it just happened at this time, uh, we were memorizing Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind consider others better than yourselves. Right? Okay. So I'm reading this, memorizing it, our kids. And then about... 15 minutes later during dinner, we're having World War III at the table. Me and my wife and one of my children are at war. And the child is not right. And my three-year-old is sitting in a high chair. My, my youngest is sitting in the high chair. And out of nowhere, in the middle of the conversation, I don't know what she was thinking, but remember, I've got a kid that's acting out of selfishness and not good, and me and my wife are arguing with her, and about that time, out of nowhere, my three-year-old says, selfish ambition! <laughs> I just want you to know that the Word of God has power if you'll hide it in your heart and you'll do something with it. The last thing I want to say is they responded in humility. I'm going to make this fast, all right? I'm going to read for you the response. It's 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 13. Go inquire the Lord for me. This is Josiah now saying, Hey guys, all you men, and I'm going to list the men's name in just a second. All you men, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Remember, they're about to lose everything. It's about to fall apart right now. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, a male, Anakim, a male, Akbor, a male, Shaphan, a male, and Asiah, a male, went to Huldah, the female. A question I get around here all the time is, women, pastors, what's the matter? The Bible's all against that. Really? I got five guys right there going to ask a woman to speak the word of God to them. If you're reading the Bible that ob ob obscures and keeps away a lady from being able to minister the word of God, you're not reading the whole Bible. So she's the wife of Shalom, keeper of the wardrobe. She now lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, This, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell the men who sent you to me, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster on this place and upon its inhabitants. Did that happen? Yes, in just a few short years. 
and all the words of the book of the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger in the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel regarding the words you have heard, because your heart was penitent, because you humbled yourself before the Lord. This is the Josiah generation. Because you hear God's word, because you act on it, because you repent, because you say, I'm going to do what I can. When you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you, declares the Lord. And because God heard Josiah, Daniel became Daniel, Shadrach became Shadrach, Meshach became Meshach, Abednego became Abednego, Jeremiah became Jeremiah, and the word of God continued because they decided to seek God then. Christian leaders that I know and I, we have talked. And the stats are all saying the same thing. America is becoming a post-Christian environment. We used to have a moral majority, (laughs) as immoral as it was. And that moral majority is now gone. And the things that you hold as valuable and worthwhile... The things that honor God, the things that are true, that are right, that are pure, and that are holy, are now disregarded by this world. And you are beginning to be looked at as a hater and as someone that is filled with small-mindedness and arrogance. And this culture has turned on you, and it will continue to turn on you. The days of the destruction are at hand. Some of you are going to lose your jobs for your righteous stances. These days are at hand. God is not surprised. He knew that Israel was about to end. He knew that Judah was about to end. And he prepared a people to be ready to raise up a righteous generation. And he prepared them before the end came. God knows the culture. God knows all time. And I believe he is calling us to be more than Christians that get by. He wants us to be followers of Jesus that thrive, that raise up a generation to be faithful regardless of the cost and will stand up and proclaim with victory the power and love of God to generations to come. And I believe he wants to start it now. But it's not going to start with you being half-hearted, whimsical, and flimsy as a follower of Jesus. It's going to start when you and I hear the word of the Lord, when we repent, when we turn our hearts to him, when we devote ourselves to what is right, and we commit ourselves 
to do his will regardless. I want to end the service one way, but I think the Holy Spirit told me to end it a different way. This is a solemn message. And it calls for repentance. And it calls for you to turn your heart to God. And I would like us just to take a moment or two where we're at. Maybe you need to kneel down. Maybe you need to come to this altar. Maybe you need to stand. I don't know what you do, but I want you to respond to the word of the Lord that's calling you and I to raise up a Daniel generation, to stop this namby-pamby Christian garbage and go all in. I'd like you to respond now. Father, we respond with repentance for our sins and for our hearts that have sought the pleasures of this world. We respond by asking you to give us a pure heart and clean hands that we would serve you, that we would be devoted to you. We pray that you would hear our cries of repentance and that you would raise up for us a generation that would survive and not only survive but would thrive through the struggles of the coming years. God, would you help us to be a people who are truly devoted to you and truly care and truly give life to every person in our world. We ask it in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. With your head so bowed, I want to ask a question. If you're here in this room and for the first time God has spoken to your heart, and you know that this is the first time you, you want to respond. You want to say, Jesus, I want to go all in for you. And that's you, and you want to repent, and you want to turn to him. And that's you right now in this room. Would you just lift your hand really quick? I want to pray with you right now. That's you. You've heard, yes, 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 there are others. Yes, today is your day. Come on, it's all in for Jesus right now, right now. Yes. There's uh, going to be a lady standing here at the back wall. There's a little table before you leave today. If you raise your hand, would you stop by the table and would you hear, would you talk to them about what the next step is, what your next step needs to be? I want to pray a prayer for you right now. Jesus, I pray for every person to just raise their hand. You heard the confession of their heart. They made you Lord. And I ask you, Jesus, that there would be life that would fall upon them in the name of Jesus Christ. God, your people were made to thrive. Let them thrive in your goodness and blessings, I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, we've got something going on really cool. We've got some people that are going to...